Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope that you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. So this week's topic, uh, we are, well, <laughs> this is our uh, episode three in a series, uh, An Unholy Convergence, uh, where we're trying to untangle how white nationalism, evangelical Christianity, and Trumpism became so enmeshed with one another. And in the first episode, we talked about the listener question that inspired this series, and we shared our experiences with the subject we're covering. Um, in the second, we used primary sources to tell the story of American nationalism and how it came to carry the words white and Christian as part of its definition. And then this episode. <laughs> and then this episode. And uh, before we get into it and start making people mad, please know that the goal of this episode is to paint a picture of what the Trump voter base looked like based on research, not how we feel about each other, and to talk through the constellation of concerns that basically led them to believe that he was their best advocate. Our goal is to get to the end of this episode with a clear understanding of especially why the evangelical voting bloc turned out so hard for Donald Trump in 2016 and in 2020, and then to set the stage for next week's conversation about just how he won and held their vote. Especially uh, vexing, I think, that that topic of how he won the evangelical vote. Um, it's something that it was like the core of the question at hand um, from from our listeners is, you know, how I don't get it because it doesn't seem to align with what I was taught in the church. Um, and then there's just the greater frustration of how that's sort of snowballed into the general uh, resistance to authority that I think we've we've mm -hmm. been seeing uh, from the evangelical side of America. Um, you know, it showed showed up during COVID. I guess we're still in COVID. Uh, <laughs> I, I talked about, during peak COVID. During peak peak COVID. regulation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I'm. This that was actually this turned out this particular episode uh, started as one discussion about what Trump voters sort of what identified them what their what their 
concerns were going into the vote and then and then evangelical voters and like that was all supposed to be one but the research out there is is profound and there's a lot of it and so we yeah. actually ended up having to split this one into two episodes in twain um so very enlightening though as 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 we've been researching um and and reflecting on the question we're trying to answer with this series it has i think become more and more obvious that the allegiance between donald trump and evangelical voters isn't it's not the result of some overt logical cause and effect process there's there's a lot going on under the surface there it's it's more like a recipe um, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, one thing interacts with another thing to create a third thing that's completely different than the two things that interacted prior, um, and and then we have a, a you know a reaction. Yeah, if we're gonna understand exactly how we ended up with this crazy casserole, uh, we have to approach it the way that we would any other recipe. And so, what do we find at the beginning of any recipe? Oh. Oh, a long and drawn out story about the author's childhood with some sort of like Hallmark-esque filtered story about a warm uh, morning in a heavy yeah. snowfall in the middle of winter and uh, a dog. Definitely have a dog somewhere in there. Unfortunately, you are way too right about that. That's too accurate for my own comfort. Uh, but usually after you've made it through the apple orchard, and um, making fresh cider for the first time as a child and the stars in your eyes, you do eventually get to an ingredients list. And that's where we're going to start. So we'll take a look at what the evangelical voter base was made of in 2016. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> we're about to step so, in it. We know it. We Everyone's going to be mad. If you feel personally attacked by anything that comes out within the next, oh, 40 minutes or so, just know that it is not directed specifically at you. And if you are uh -huh. upset about it, maybe start asking why and not just blaming us for being hateful people. <laughs> We're yeah. not. This is just sort of like what the research has indicated. So yeah. we'll start. And we'll start with the basics. Easy exactly. peasy. In 2016, somewhere around 75% of evangelical Protestants in the United States were white. About half of them lived in the South, and another quarter lived in the Midwest, and on the whole, they were slightly less likely to have a college degree than the average American. Right. This may seem fairly common sense to some, uh, but we really want to pause and make a point here. Part of what drives this particular brand of voters that supported Trump is the perception of losing status in society. There are a lot of layers to what that means, but one of the most basic effects here is that there's an inbuilt resentment toward the white, Christian, and uneducated summary of a voter. The natural response to being identified like this is that it feels like other people are looking down on you for those reasons. Just to be clear, we on this show don't think that the lack of a college degree makes anyone uneducated or that any of these factors make anyone less than. That's that's not what we do here. A college degree, um, well, we talked about it last week. A lot of times a college degree is just a very, very expensive way to say, hey, I'd really like to do this job. Yeah. Um, so, But often these descriptors are, are paired with coverage of ideas or beliefs that's being cast in a negative light. I mean, the 
very nature of this series feels pretty negative if you belong to that group. Why did you vote for the guy who nearly tore down this country, you white Christian non-college educated people? Yeah. So just to be painfully clear, we're not saying that belonging to this group or any of the groups we're about to mention automatically is negative or that these factors are what directly drove the decision-making process for these voters. That would be crazy and reductive. It's really kind of in the same vein as saying black folks are more criminal and violent or Mexicans are lazy. I won't go so far as to say it's reverse racism because that's a problematic phrase to begin with, but it's inaccurate paint with these broad strokes and it it is inaccurate at best at worst it is harmful and damaging to our society and to people Um, so these descriptors they're really just bare bones it's hard to make any inferences about what characteristics the voter base had that engendered them to trump based solely on those three sort of descriptors there we need to focus in a little bit And thankfully, there was a significant amount of research done after the 2016 election. Um, So many people were so shocked by what happened that they decided that they needed to get to work figuring it out. So thankfully, that gives us a lot more to work with here. For example, we can start by looking at one of the largest voting populations that came out for Trump and then narrowing down within that group. In that election, best estimates show that 77 to 81% of evangelical voters cast their ballots for Trump. That means that we can look at the demographics of those voters to get a good idea of what the average evangelical voter looked like at that time. To do that, we're going to use a combination of research reports put together by the Pew Research Institute. These reports examined several data sets, including verified voter files and incorporated self-reported information to build a representative picture of the voter bases for both Trump and Clinton in 2016. Of course, this information is just that. It's representative. No one is making the claim that these numbers are you know, accurate down to the decimal, but they do give us a statistically relevant picture of these groups. If you're here... Allow us to give you a, a, uh, or if you're new here, rather, you've probably heard this several times before if you've just been here, but if you're new here, allow us to give you a very abbreviated speech on statistics. When you read a report with a headline like 60% of Americans like cream in their coffee or 20% of millennials spend too much on avocado toast, the researchers compiling the information did not reach out and ask every American about their coffee preferences or every millennial how much they spend on brunch. Frankly, spending anything on avocado toast is a waste of money. There are much better ways to eat avocado. Those reports are using representative data from a smaller population to draw conclusions about larger groups. And when the research being done is good, specific steps are taken to ensure that the representative group matches the bigger group as closely as possible. There are checks in place to make sure that enough information is included and that factors that could skew the data are controlled for. These checks include things like making sure that the study group is large enough to actually draw general trends from. A study with 10 people in the group probably isn't going to represent the general population of the nation very well. It also means that the group is diverse enough to represent the larger population. If all the people in your study are, say, from Texas, 
then they probably won't reflect how people in New York would think or act. That's one reason that we're so careful about the sources that we use. We want to make sure that we're giving you the best information that we can. And we're confident in the research that's been done by Pew in this circumstance, but we do always cite our sources so that you can check them out for yourself, review the methodology, and let us know if you disagree. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Okay. The Pew research showed that Trump was especially popular among older men and men without college degrees. That definitely tracks with the average evangelical at the time. In fact, only about one-third of Trump voters represented in the Pew research had college degrees at all. We also know that age played a significant role in 2016. Only 13% of the eligible voters in 2016 were younger than 30, while 57% of voters were over 50. These voters aged 50 plus favored Trump by an average of two points. So they, there were roughly 52% of them favored Trump, while 48% favored either Clinton or a third party. Um, interestingly, though, Trump wasn't all that popular among low-income voters. Instead, he seemed to appeal more to middle-income folks. Um, using exit polls and Census Bureau data, Nate Silver from 538 estimated that the median household income of a Trump supporter in the 2016 Republican primaries before Trump clinched the nomination was $72,000 a year. It's pretty far above the national median of $56,000. Exactly. Um, and, and the fact that you just pointed out that this was in the primaries before he clinched the nomination reminded me of something that I really did want to point out. Um, sometimes that, that information, information from the primaries, is a little bit more representative of the people who are the most actively for a candidate. Uh, because we do know that with the two-party system that we have right now, there are a lot of people who will vote for the candidate from whichever party they most align with, regardless of how they feel about their that candidate's policies or hmm. or their perceptions or their um, personalities. So we did have a decent-sized group of people after the primaries who decided that they would be casting their vote for Trump simply because he was the Republican candidate. Yeah. Uh, party line voters, actually. Exactly. That's a and that's, very common that's one yeah. of those things that can kind of shift the data when we're looking at the intentionality and alignment of voters with the candidates that they support. Another thing that we know was that Trump was very, very popular with white men and with white voters overall. 88% of the people who voted for him were white, and those voters were also overwhelmingly rural or suburban residents, which again, tracks with what we know about evangelicals in 2016. The study done by 538 also found that Trump supporters were less likely to live in neighborhoods with a significant number of immigrants or non-white residents. And then reinforcing that connection between these Christian voters and Donald Trump, the Pew research showed that religious affiliation and church service attendance were both correlated with a vote for Trump. We mentioned earlier that he carried more than three quarters of evangelical votes, but more than half of white mainline Protestants and 60% of white Catholics who cast their ballots also cast their ballots for Trump. And the more church services that a voter attended, the more likely they were to vote for Trump. 
So nearly 60% of folks who reported attending church at least weekly cast their vote for Donald Trump. And I would imagine that if we started to count the uh, more frequent, the higher numbers of church services attended per week, you'd start to see that number skew upward. We were just talking about uh, back in the olden days, how many times we would find each other or find ourselves at a church. Um, yeah. And I mean, three, four, sometimes five is not unrealistic. In a yeah. Week. The, there was actually a typo in here when when I first looked at it that said people who attended church five times a week were likely to cast their vote for Trump. And I was like, five times a week? Who has the time to go to church five times a week? But then I started thinking about it. And like my family went to church in some form like five times a week for a yeah. while there. Like twice on Sundays, literally, uh, Wednesday. Um, and then there was a uh, like a small group that we would go to, which was, it was basically like Sunday school at some point throughout the week and then Sunday school. So if you count that, that's, that's five different like church study groups, social events, whatever, uh, within the span of a week, it is looking back on it a little, little, little intense. It's (laughs) It's a lot. Exactly. So what do we know at this point? talking about this information besides that uh besides the people who voted for trump were white and christian and didn't have a college degree um well first they tended to be older americans second second they largely did not dwell in cities and third not only were they christian but they were they were relatively highly religious Mm -hmm. if you take church attendance as a measure of religiosity Right. Right. Not every churchgoer attends every week. It's kind of it was like a standing joke uh, when I went to church was, you know, the people who only attended on uh, Easter or, um, you know, holidays or something like that. Um, Right. So if you go weekly, you're actually kind of above average for church attendance uh, nationally. Um, So um, the picture, when you take all of that into consideration, it begins to come into a bit clearer focus, right? Um, But all of this demographic information is nothing but numbers, really, unless we dig even farther into what was happening with these older, white, non-urban Christian folk who, without college degrees at the time, which seems like a small, it should be relatively small if you have all of those filters on, but it's not. It's a massive part of the country. And it turns out there was a lot going on in that base. They were definitely not a monolith, which I am sure is absolutely shocking. Oh, yeah. Yes. Very surprising. Shocked. A 2017 paper by researcher Emily Eskins outlined five different types of Trump voters who showed up during the 2016 election cycle. Some of these, like the anti-elites and disengaged voters, seem to cast a vote for Trump almost on the flip of a coin. Um, you know, their their whole vote was determined by who would disrupt the most or, you know, whoever they heard the last sound bite from or who their friends were voting for, which means that there is really no predictive value to determine who they would vote for. They didn't really telegraph many strong opinions that aligned with the Trump platform. They just seemed tired of the status quo. Yeah, they liked a candidate who would stand up to the media, whether that's Jorge Ramos or Megyn Kelly. They didn't care which media you were standing up to. 
um, because they that group of people didn't feel like the reporters or the media gave them a fair shake either. They were drawn to a candidate that hailed from outside the beltway, which is to say not from the Washington, D.C. area, even though Trump's hometown was the elitist island of Manhattan, uh, because they think that the Washington establishment has abandoned them. And they appreciated someone who made no apology for using politically incorrect rhetoric, even if that meant a bit of profanity or misogyny, because this group of people also felt like society is growing increasingly intolerant of many of their sentiments, too. Which, when when, when I read this, when I got to this research, it was very strange to me because I live in the beltway now. So I'm apparently an elitist. So, uh, you know, take my opinion with a grain of, grain of salt. Um, no, it was weird to me because I don't, I don't ever remember feeling like Washington cared about me. So I yeah. don't understand. Like, so it was weird to me to, to read about people who felt like they were abandoned by dc because at least in springfield missouri dc was never for us it was never on our side you know does does that track yeah like i don't i don't remember ever being taught that like the government or the politicians are here for you but i feel like there is an older group of americans maybe uh the folks who are on the older side of gen x or um a little bit older than that 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 they were kind of taught that the government was their advocate. Your politician, your senator, your congressperson, your representative is your advocate. They speak for you. It's and really so, interesting. Yeah. I, kind I was of like kind of always. Age. I was kind of taught. Now, mind you, this all this only ever came up whenever the person that I was not necessarily voted for because I wasn't highly politically active until uh, later on in my life. Um, highly, I wasn't politically involved. I shouldn't say I'm politically active. That's, that's not quite correct. Um, but I remember whenever I would express something like frustration or disappointment with whatever a politician in DC had done, I was pretty much explicitly taught that it doesn't really matter because what goes on in DC doesn't really impact your life here. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, don't worry about it. Um, so then, and you know, to hear that that people feel abandoned by the same sort of people, the same institutions that they were typifying as 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 not mattering in the first place. It's one of those. Um, what do they call it? I always think of of mental schism, but that's not quite right. Um, Gosh, ah, I hate when I go up on this word. Hmm? Cognitive dissonance. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's one of those those cognitive dissonance areas that is really, really interesting to me. Your politician doesn't matter, but at the same time, they abandon us. You know, it doesn't matter if they're Democrat or Republican. All politicians are the same, but all Democrats are evil, right? Right. This is that this is that cognitive dissonance that is really I would say it's probably the deepest undercurrent of all this is just opinion, but of all Trump voters, because I feel like 
at some level, a Trump vote was a protest vote as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, al- and, for and, almost everybody. Well, and, and that's something that, um, that Emily Eakins, Eakins, however you say it, um, pointed out in her, in her paper is that there were a lot of people who I think as she put it, held their nose and voted for Trump just so mm. that they didn't have to say they voted for Clinton. Oh yeah, for sure. And I, it makes me wonder, I'm interested to see if he runs again for the 2024, uh, election, um, Will those same people that have now experienced the Trump presidency and saw where it led, will they vote for him again? Will they hold their nose again if it's Trump or Biden in 2024? Because Biden has said that he will run again at this point. Interesting. I think, pretty sure. Uh, I think he's. I think there was a caveat that that was basically like, if I'm you know healthy enough to do it, of course I'm going to run again. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. So if if he does run again. Will they hold their nose and vote for Trump again or will they vote for Biden again? Because a lot of people held their nose and voted for Biden, too. Yeah. So what happens I, in that scenario? I know. Good news. Good news. We have a whole episode planned on that, actually. I know. I'm just building an, trail I'm, and digress and all of those things. I'm building the anticipation for that seeding those questions this was all definitely planned and on purpose and not because i was just right very curious about it (laughs) right well and so as we're looking through those five different types of trump voters you know you have your anti um, elites and you have your disengaged voters but the really strong groups that came out for trump were the the staunch conservatives right the people who are incredibly politically active. They have a, a pretty darn factual and accurate understanding of what's going on politically, but they have a very hard line conservative perspe- perspective across the board from yeah. social to fiscal to um, to moral and ethical conservatism across the board. And then you also had the American preservationist groups that came out in force and I think we talked about them a little bit the last time, but yeah. those are are the folks who really believe that in order to keep America um, the best version of our country that it can be, there are certain boundaries that have to be drawn around identity. Yeah. And, and we also saw that we saw that those were the two largest groups that came out in support of Donald Trump. I think we talk about the American preservationists again here in a little bit. Um, regardless, whenever you take all of these factors that we've been discussing and and kind of blend them together, it begins to paint a picture to mix our metaphor. We started with a recipe and now we're painting a picture. So um, yeah. of what the <laughs> it, it very paints that late picture. When I was writing these metaphors, very late. Uh, well, I'm the one who actually started the painting metaphor. You started the cooking oh. metaphor. And together, we have created an our own unholy abomination of metaphor. Um, but regardless, taking this all into account, it sort of paints this picture of what the average Trump voter was concerned about. Older, white, highly religious suburbanites and rural families with some level of financial stability who felt that they had played by the rules of our society to achieve their success. And this group is who voted for Trump. And they were beginning to see national sentiment about their attainment of the American dream shift and change and be 
questioned. Though, though these people had quote unquote won, right? They were now being told that the game they had worked so hard to win was rigged in their favor. Mm-hmm. There was a, a constant undercurrent of being portrayed, these groups being portrayed rather as morally deficient, despite the fact that these groups followed the rules. Right. It was like all of a sudden in 2016, they were being told, hey, all of that stuff that you worked so hard for, you only got because of your demographic categories. Right. Yeah. And it, I, I mean, I feel like I would, well, we talked about it when we were talking about uh, Justice Jackson and, and the, the controversy over stating explicitly that you're going to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. I don't want to feel like the achievements that I've made have anything to do with my demographics. I want them to feel like they're my accomplishments. And so we saw this feeling manifested in the backlash that ended up with Trump winning working class whites by a margin of more than two to one, outpacing Reagan's historic highs in 1984 even. The problems that they were facing weren't that they didn't have what they needed to survive. It was that they feared that what they had attained already was going to be taken away from them. Remember, Trump didn't do very well among those that were currently experiencing the most hardship. He wasn't perceived as an answer to that suffering, but he was a prophylactic, a protection, and a guarantee for those who were already in kind of a stable place that things weren't going to get any worse for them. We can see that if we take a look at the results of how he performed among manufacturing workers. An analysis by Gallup showed that Trump was actually less popular in places that have seen the sharpest decline in manufacturing jobs. That is, in the places where the jobs were already gone, Trump didn't do that well. However, in places that still had some sort of manufacturing base, Uh, but the people weren't likely to move up or improve their situation or where mortality rates were higher among middle-aged whites, uh, Trump did much, much better. Yeah, we also have to consider the fact that white men have seen their incomes fall over the past 40 years when compared to women and non-whites, right? They're not growing at the same pace. Um, despite the fact that whites are least likely to live in poverty and the median net worth of a white household is 13 times greater than a black household in 2016, the gap between the two groups is narrowing somewhat. And we're nowhere close to parity, of course, but if all you're hearing is that certain groups need to be paid more or given preferential hiring policy while you're struggling to meet your own needs... Well, as Kevin Drum from Mother Jones wrote, it's certainly something that helps explain why white men are angrier than most people about their economic position. This is why, in part, that Vox's Matthew Iglesias has argued that it's racial resentment, first and foremost, and not the economy, that accounted for Trump's popularity. That's why, to quote, Trump voters say they're upset about needing to press one for English. They're mad that Black Lives Matter protesters are slandering police officers, and they're worried that Muslim and or Mexican immigrants are going to murder their children. And these were all sentiments. Yeah. I I didn't mean to interrupt you. They were all sentiments. No, you're good. These were all sentiments that that we heard in conversation, that we heard in policy Mm. as the election 
rhetoric was going forward. Yeah. And I was just going to say, like, if we if we go and say these things, if we say that Trump supporters are racist or misogynistic, aren't we like aren't we painting everybody with that same brush that we were saying earlier was not okay to paint people with? Like, is this not the same if we say what we have said? which we have said. <laughs> this is a very confusing way to word it. If we go with this racial resentment thing, let me word it that way, uh, this racial resentment uh, quote, are we saying that all Trump supporters are racist or misogynist or, or xenophobic? The answer to that, obviously not. We are not saying right. that. I mean, like this whole show is about nuance. So genuinely, I feel that many probably maybe maybe most of his supporters truly view issues about economic equality with no active consideration of race or gender. I'm what I'm saying is that these factors have like roots in subjects of race and gender, but the people who are considering those factors, they don't really actively consider that aspect of it. When Mm -hmm. a politician says we need to strive for equity, it never kind of makes it to that stage. It's more that they hear, you know, we need to close the wealth gap and help those who need it most. And the automatic thought after that is, well, who is going to pay for that help? Who's going to pay for that aid? It's going to end up being me. My taxes are going to go up. I can barely pay for myself now as it is. And it's not that I don't want to help these people or these groups. I just have to think about my own, you know, precarious position first. And we know that people in 2016, there was a a large part of the population that was struggling to make ends meet that were living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. We know that that only increased in the past couple of years because the world shut down. Um, So there is it is it is even though. Trump voters are in the median of the income range, as we mentioned earlier. They're not on the the low end of the range. It doesn't mean that they are making enough money to live comfortably or to achieve the lifestyle that they want, which often goes into those calculations of like, am I making enough money? It's not necessarily about do I have a roof over my head and food on my plate for some people. It's do I, can I live the life that I want to live? Can I comfortably mm-hmm. do the things that I want to do? Can I take my vacations and can I buy the toys that I want to buy and, and have the experiences that I want to experience and do so comfortably? And if you can't and then somebody comes along and says, I'm going to take more of your paycheck in order to fund these programs to help these other people who don't even have a roof over their head. Mm-hmm. It hurts. It hurts. <laughs> it hurts. Yeah. As as Howard Rosenthal of the New York Times wrote, redistribution is not win-win. Identity politics is a matter of social justice that has limited economic benefits for white males. If you're white and male and struggling, but the conversation is about minorities or women, you feel like your own needs are being ignored at best. At best you feel like you're being ignored. Or mm-hmm. forgotten about. <laughs> At worst, you feel targeted. 
you you hear all of this talk about how the white male has privilege and how we need to help minorities that are struggling or women who don't have paycheck parity, if you will. And you're thinking to yourself the whole time, well, yeah, but I can't provide for my family either. So right. what the hell? Trump played on that. His campaign played on that thought process. He knew what he was doing when he began this promise of turning back the clock and making America great again. We'll go back to a time when a man could support his family on a single income. Not that that was ever explicitly stated, but I think that's the sort of halcyon dream. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. the callback that was trying to that was being evoked, right? The brain sort of like when you hear that, just it, it very pleasantly like elides any recognition of the idea that these times took advantage of huge swaths of the American population to make right. that like, possible. Who, who doesn't want to imagine a society in which they feel respected and valued where the work that they do is enough and they can they can provide for themselves and their families. Like nobody doesn't want to imagine that. Right. It seems so, though, like when you phrase it like that, it seems um, like the people who feel this way, the white males in particular who supported Trump can't really see past the end of their own nose though, because mm -hmm. they want this recognition. They want this comfort. They want this respect, but they can't sort of understand that, they want to, in, in in the way that they have voted or the, their resistance to certain ideas, they are preventing other people from right. getting those same things. And the math becomes if those people get those same things, they're taking it from me. Yeah. And that's that's kind of where we get into this this question of like, is this active racial resentment? Is it active misogyny or is it a an egocentric focus? on preserving what you have, regardless of the cost to someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I mean, researchers have been trying to figure that out for going on five years now, right? Uh, but probably much longer than that. Well, <laughs> yes, be, yes. I would not be In the context either. of this particular voter yeah. base, they've yeah. been trying to figure that out. Good um, point, yes. But, but so once, once we're here, once we have all of these factors considered, it isn't difficult to expand our logic to the other popular talking points of the Trump campaign. Since Trump's victory in 2016, scholars have defined five key factors that defined his influence. Uh, they were white working class economic anxieties, misogyny, anti-black prejudice, fear of Islamic terrorism, and xenophobia. Again, we are not saying that all Trump voters were misogynistic, racist, xenophobic people. So don't take that idea away. What we are saying is that those are the key themes, the key um, campaign narratives where he seemed to gain the most traction. Yeah. To summarize, right, the people who could most easily picture themselves losing what they still had in order to support social justice, viewed Trump as a way to hold on to their lives and protect them from the grasping hands of the others. People on the right 
tend to focus on the economic anxiety explanation for Trump's popularity, while people on the left tend to focus on the misogynistic, racist, xenophobic explanation for Trump's popularity. And I think that perhaps neither one of these are right. And I, in fact, think both explanations are uh, very detrimental to our society if we adhere strictly to one or the other. To me and to the way I read what we have you know, gathered in our research for this episode, it seems that the truth is more intertwined, more complex than a straightforward explanation either way. Shocking. We Shocking. Yeah. Shocking. Us? Shocking. Nuance? What? Yes. Never. Exactly. So let's talk for a second about why we're focusing on white evangelicals, because we just told you a little while ago that there was this whole demographic group of people who voted for Trump. But when we start to drill down on these factors, I think it becomes a little bit more clear why we're focusing on the white evangelical voter in this series specifically. Um, it's obviously more complex than, well, I'm a white Christian. I have no choice but to vote for Trump. There's a strong interplay in the concerns of the general population and the ideologies of these voters. The key seems to be the growing anti-establishment sentiments that were held by many evangelical Christians. Uh, this was and is demonstrated by the fact that the anti-establishment Tea Party movement draws disproportionate support from the ranks of white evangelical voters. Not only are conservative Christians solidly Republican, again, generally in trend, they are also fierce traditionalists who feel like their values are increasingly under assault by modern society. You can see that, I mean, look at how hard the, the Republican push, the conservative push to install Supreme Court justices that agreed with their mentality was. Mm -hmm. Look at the rallying cries behind, um, you know, eliminating abortion rights, about uh, eliminating non-traditional marriage. We like to call it, you know, same-sex marriage or something like that. But the phrasing that they use when they're campaigning is, either traditional marriage or non-traditional marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, a traditional or marriage is between... Biblical marriage. Or biblical marriage, right? It's mm -hmm. between a man and a woman. Biblical marriage between a man and a woman and sanctified by God. Um, sorry, came out. Um, you know, these. it's just like... The messaging does not hide the... The, the concerns, right? It's, there's no disguising what they're truly concerned about. And it's a departure from these traditional, in their mind, these historically American traits. But none of these factors that we've talked about earlier are strictly white evangelical traits, not, you know, xenophobia or um, racism or misogyny is not something that is necessarily it is not taught by white evangelicals, right? There's no, I shouldn't say there's no, there's, I shouldn't say there's no, there's very few white evangelical leaders are saying to reject the foreigner, are saying to be scared of the other in explicit mm -hmm. terms, right? The messages aren't like that. Um, but 
think about when we defined Christian nationalism a couple of weeks ago. The idea is that we are inherently a Christian nation, and that idea, by definition, overlaps very heavily with those five keys that we dis- that we discussed a little earlier in this episode, and sometimes directly overlaps. So, you know, we can't be a Christian nation if we have a bunch of Muslims running the place, or, you know, women are subservient to men, and therefore pay equity isn't necessary. Um you know, women. I believe that the word that you're looking for that is much more politically correct and acceptable is complementary. Complementarianism. I can barely even say it because it feels like such bullshit to me. Um, but we were created for different things. So women oh. do not need pay equity because they were created to manage the home. But yeah, we don't call it subservience anymore. We call it complementarianism. Oh. Okay. Well, at the church I grew up in, the phrase subservient was explicitly used. So, oh, man. yeah, <laughs> my bad. I haven't been to a sermon in a hot minute. So for, <laughs> yeah. for what might be apparent reasons. Yeah. Anywho. Um, <laughs> right. So if you'll recall, Democracy Fund's survey, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, asking how important legal, behavioral and immutable characteristics are for being an American. It resulted in agreement among participants that citizenship and respect for American institutions mattered, but a significant portion of the group, this is where we see that overlap with the American preservationists, also thought that locational, cultural, and ethnic definitions were comparatively very important for being an American. Another Democracy Fund survey found that American preservationists are 20 to 50 points more likely than other groups of Trump supporters to say that it's very important to have certain ethnic and cultural identifiers in order to be truly American. The factors that American preservationists value are being born here, having lived in America for more, for most of one's life, being Christian, and being of European descent. This isn't a small set of Trump voters either. 20% of the people who voted for Trump were, are, are still probably American preservationists. And all Trump voters seem to be united in favoring at least a temporary ban on Muslim immigration. So the ideals that drive Trump's campaign overlapped heavily with ideals behind Christian nationalism. However, this was something very interesting I found. Something strange happens whenever we consider Christian nationalism in comparison to those independent ideas behind it that sort of form what Christian nationalism is. Data from a national probability sample of Americans surveyed soon after the 2016 election um, showed that greater adherence to Christian nationalist ideology was a very good predictor of whether someone would vote for Trump. Hmm. This, in and of itself, not really a surprise. What is surprising is that even after removing the influences of those other factors that we talked about, like economic dissatisfaction or sexism, anti-black prejudice, um, anti-Muslim refugee attend- uh, attitudes, anti-immigrant, good grief, that was a weird emphasis, <laughs> anti-immigrant <laughs> Uh, 
sentiment, measures of religion, sociodemographics, and just general political identity. When you take all of those out of the equation, Christian nationalist ideology by itself remained a strong predictor of whether or not someone would vote for Trump. So hmm. even though Christian nationalism is correlated with a variety of these class-based and sexist and racist and ethnocentric views, it is not the same as, it's not synonymous with those views. It operates as a unique and independent ideology that can influence political actions by itself. Using this white and Christian nationalism ideology in a campaign kind of looks like calling for a defense of mythological narratives about America's distinct, uh, distinctively Christian heritage and future. Sounds a little familiar. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you hear it as, you know, we were formed a Christian nation and we will only prosper moving forward as a Christian nation. We need to make America great again. <sighs> Man. That's a uh, that's a great segue into next week's topic, which is just how on earth did this man who seems to stand in opposition to everything we know uh, evangelical Christianity to represent win and hold their allegiance for a very, very large number of years. Uh, but you know what else is a great segue? What's a great segue? This, this is a great segue. This segue, bam, nailed it. Oh, right into it. if you like what we do here or if you really hate what we do here, um, you can let us know on our website, firesidebreakdowns.com. There's a little box that you can like send us a message and we'll see mm -hmm. it and we'll be like, oh, cool message, bro. Uh, we just got one from a good buddy, Ellis, uh, this last week. And uh, thank you, Ellis. And we'll uh, see whatever you send us. Very exciting. You can also find links to our social medias. Uh, you can find all of the research that we've done for each episode, uh, basically the script for every show. You can find all of our past shows. And most importantly, Second, most importantly, you can find our the link to our Patreon. Patreon. If you like that, if you like what we do, you can throw some bucks our way. And yes. we're we officially have backup to do all of the cool things that we want to do with our Patreon. So um, it would be great if you did that. Um, yeah. Most importantly, though, leave us a review for the show. Mm -hmm. Do it. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. I promise you, they're not doing it. <laughs> Leave a review. It's you. Very, it's all very you. Helpful. Yeah. So that said, do we have some good news to talk about? We have some good news to talk about week. today. Awesome. Yeah. Hit me. So uh, something that we like to do here, because I am anticipating that this series is probably going to attract some attention from folks who aren't regular listeners to the podcast. One of the things that we like to do around here is give you a piece of good news with every episode. And when there is a particular um, month of emphasis on the calendar and in the media, we like to try to align our good news with that. So the day that we are recording this is May 1st, and it is the first day of Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in the United States. And so our good news for today has to do with that and the fact that TikTok, 
uh, the hip and with it social media platform for the Gen Z, has decided to celebrate Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month in their own way uh, by promoting and featuring API, that's the cool term for it now, I guess, um, API content creators through various live stream television shows and with the hashtag API Heritage. So if you are on the TikTok and you would like to uh, see what's going on in the Asian Pacific Islander content creator community and participate in elevating the work that they're doing and in uh, replicating their voices out to the community, then you should definitely check out that hashtag, check out the the TikTok. Or if you happen to be of the millennial Instagram generation, I am confident that much of that will also get shared on Instagram. So you might just actually check out that that hashtag there as well. I have to this date managed to resist the siren call of the TikTok. Um, I also find it amusing to call it the TikTok. Yes. It's kind of like saying the Nintendo. Uh, <laughs> I'm or sure. Or the Walmarts. It, the ooh. Gotta go to that the Walmarts. Horrible. The Walmarts. Ugh, disgusting. <laughs> um, I'm really hoping. I'm not going to lie. I was hoping, because I didn't know what the good news was. I was hoping that it would be a Moana 2. But. Oh, man. I love that movie. Guess not such a good movie. It was so good. Um, I mean, it's it's a little little passe at this point, but you know, if you're looking for a cool movie that you could watch to celebrate this month, Moana would be one, but also the brand new Pixar movie Turning Red, absolutely phenomenal, and uh, does a really good job of highlighting Chinese culture in you a really cool way. The movie where Disney tries to convince our children to be satanic? Mm-hmm. I like how you didn't even push back on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's I the mean, latest let's, one. I mean, let's just talk about how shocking it is that young female humans experience a thing called the puberty. That's another thing people are complaining about is that we shouldn't oh, talk know. to our kids about that. I'm like, kids shouldn't guys. know. Kids shouldn't be equipped with the knowledge of, you know, how life works because that's dangerous. Yeah. I don't know. It's the same. You know what? This is getting into a conversation about why we still don't have good sex education in public schools and so on and so forth. And we don't have time for that today. We don't have time for that. Nope. But if you want to hear it, send us a note on our firesidebreakdowns.com yeah. website. Let us know. Okay. Or even That's it a for YouTube this comment. one. We are getting out of here. Have a wonderful week. And uh, until we talk to you next week, take care of each other. Yeah.